Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we are talking to the sports and conditioning coaching legend, Joe DeFranco. Guys, we lucked out on this one. After Bryn had come back from Joe D's CPPS course in San Jose and speaking to us on the mics on episode 107, Joe DeFranco reached out to me specifically and asked to be on the show. How awesome is that? <laughs> Don't you love it when stuff like that happens? And what Joe wanted to discuss was the big question, can you develop speed on the field with hypertrophy training in the gym? And not too surprisingly, there is a lot to unpack in that question. But the good news is, you can make anyone faster with the right training programs. Even me, the guy that looks like he is going backwards in slow motion when he sprints. So, if you're looking to improve your speed and sporting performance, this is absolutely the episode for you. And if you've not got a specific sporting goal, there is still a ton of value to get from this. Ideas and concepts that will improve your function, your performance, and your training outcomes. There are also some other gems in this show, including some fascinating insights into Joe DeFranco's dream-crushing backstory, and Joe's top tips on what it takes to be a great coach. As always, you can check out the episode full show notes, as well as leaving comments and questions by clicking the link in your podcast app. I'm pretty sure you're going to want to follow Joe DeFranco online after this, if you're not already. Cool. Let's get into it. We've got Joe DeFranco talking about developing speed with hypertrophy training. Guys, so I've got a fantastic and really special guest on the mics today. So if you recall, in episode 107, uh, Bryn joined us all the way back from San Jose. He went over to see Mind Pump and specifically went to go and get his CPPS certification by Joe DeFranco and co. And I think um, Bryn done a great job of explaining what he learned. I think it's a great way of trying to learn what you've learned by, te by teaching or at least explaining it. However, um, I was very fortunate enough to get an email from the one and only Joe DeFranco saying we did a great job, but he'd like to add some clarity. So yeah, we're all lucky to be uh, braced with the the dulcet tones and the wisdom of Joe DeFranco. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the mics. Thank you for giving us some time, Joe. Thank you for having me, man. I, I listened to a uh, uh Listen to that podcast with Brendan. I was very impressed with with both of you guys. He he made us look good, and you were asking the right questions. So it was uh, I, I. There's not a lot of really good podcasts out there. So I was super impressed. I appreciate you guys representing us well. And now hopefully I could clear some more stuff up for you. Oh no, absolutely, man. It was a pleasure. So why don't we get started with giving our, our crowd a little more detail? We gave some baseline. Uh, insights into who Joe DeFranco is, if people weren't familiar, but you can do a much better job than I. Why don't you give us a sense of your current credentials and maybe a bit of a backstory just to kind of get us up to speed? Gotcha. So if 
those who aren't maybe familiar with my work, I I originally made a name for myself in the U.S. training guys for the college football players for the NFL Combine, which is basically it's almost like a mini Olympics. It's a three day event where the best 300 plus college football players get invited to go work out for NFL scouts, coaches, team owners. And you're doing things like running a 40 yard dash, a vertical jump, a broad jump, a bench press test. And that was what really kind of put me on the map. But what, how that started was I always, my dream from the time I was two years old was always to become a professional football player, NFL football player. I, I, I ate, drank, slept, breathed football. That, that's what I lived for. That's why I first got into lifting weights and training, just completely obsessed with it. I went to an all boys high school that was a football powerhouse 30 minutes away from uh, my, my house, the, the local. My mom was actually a high school teacher in the town I lived in and I didn't go to my, my own mom's high school, my own hometown high school. I went to the, the football powerhouse high school 30 minutes away and um, you know ended up having a great career. But one day, and, and this is one of those things where I, I'm one of those guys that, that is just grateful for every day, every second, every moment, because as a young 17-year-old kid playing high school football, all state, have college scholarship offers coming in. I'm on the number one ranked team in the state. Our, our team is nationally ranked. Uh, we're number 10 in the nation. I'm the captain. Like everything's going great. And I literally just wake up one morning with severe, severe pain in my back and nerve pains shooting down my leg into my foot. And like on a scale from one to 10, like an eight or a nine of just where the heck did this come from? Did I do something at football practice yesterday? I don't remember since I was a healthy 17 year old, I went to doctors, but for the most part, they, they were like, Hey, you're young, you're healthy. It's probably something that happened in football. It'll go away. Long story short, I played my entire senior year with what was a tumor growing in my spine, literally growing inside my spine and, and breaking the bone apart, which was then irritating the nerve, sciatic nerve going down my leg the whole deal, uh, that went misdiagnosed for four and a half years. I had 50 experimental procedures, four major back surgeries, none of which that worked. Uh, I, I ended up losing a lot of co college scholarships. I tried playing one year of college football, still with the tumor, not knowing what it was. Uh, and eventually they, they diagnosed it as, thankfully it was benign, but it was a tumor growing inside my bone. Um, and that was, again, five years later. It was, you know, my football career was over. I was depressed, crying myself to sleep at night, you know, knowing that I, I lost scholarships and, um, you know, my football career was over. But once I kind of got over the depression or what helped me get over the depression was one day it just clicked that I need to, 
I need to focus my energy and my time on something else. I can't just feel sorry for myself and be crying myself to sleep, you know, every night. So I, that's when I decided I'm going to put all my time, focus, energy into studying exercise science. And I always loved training. So I wanted to learn more about the human body and training. And um, I did study exercise physiology in school. I ended up getting a bachelor's degree, bachelor of science in exercise phys, and, and then got an internship at a sports performance facility. And, and that's where it all started at, at 21. I, I did an internship and that was when the same love I had for football, I now had that for helping other athletes. And namely at that time, football players, because that was my first love and the, the sport that I missed. So I started working with a lot of high school football players and uh, getting really good results with them. And then after a couple years of working at someone else's facility, that's when I opened up my own spot, started training more high school, college kids. A couple of those college uh, kids became NFL players. And then it just started to snowball with the NFL combine stuff and football. And then baseball players started to come to me and boxers and MMA fighters. And then we just started attracting athletes from all over the world. Well, I mean, that's, that's a, an emotional story as well as I'm just curious as to this space. So like with, with this tumor, um, what, I mean, I know it's hard to diagnose or put a cause behind, you know, cancer growth, but was there any, any suggestion as to how this came about or why? Now, years later, they tell me it's somewhat common in younger men. It was uh, a, a benign tumor growing inside inside the bones, uh, osteoosteoma, um, which is now, and again, now I'm 44 years old. This started at 17, so I'm obviously there's been a lot of medical advances in the in that time, but from 17 to you know 20. 122 i had seven mris i think four or five cat scans bone scans like it wasn't i was going to the best doctors in new york city and um it it wasn't like i wasn't going to great doctors it's just i guess because the they said the tumor was growing from inside the bone there was always abnormalities that showed but they couldn't really pinpoint it. It just, they would say, oh, you might have a, a small stress fracture. Oh, it looks like you might have a little bit of a herniated disc. And I just kept telling them, listen, I'm not someone who complains about pain. Like this pain is, is like close to a 10 out of 10. It's excruciating. There's something wrong. No, it's just this, it's just that. And um, later years, like I said, I, once they discovered it, I was having a procedure done. And I guess the the CAT scan that I had just showed the right slice of the sacrum and the lower part of my spine. And it, a doctor just caught it. It was like a miracle that day. Went in for surgery the next day. They removed it. Um, thank God it was benign. But uh, yeah, years later, they go, you know what? It's somewhat common in young men. It, you know, um, we're, we're surprised we missed it kind of thing. I, I was like, doesn't help me much, but yet no rhyme or reason. It, it, I literally went to bed one night normal and woke up the next day in pain. 
and that stayed with you for four to five years on and off or, or it- no 24 hours a day because it was what it was like you know it, it's it's not like with with a disc issue the inflammation might go down or you could lay down elevate your feet do certain things to kind of get out of pain nothing that tumor was there and and it was Always sitting on, down. on nerves and bone and uh, it no matter what i did pain 24/7 i was i was taking at the time on average 15 to 18 advil a day every day i developed an ulcer at 18 years old i have an ulcer my stomach was all messed up but the pain was that bad i just i couldn't bear it so every every 3 or 4 hours i would have to pop 3 to 4 advil um to, just to get through the day and i did that for 5 years bloody hell well do you know what there's uh, there's a blessing in every curse right it sounds like this it's allowed you to one obsess about physiology to create the the career that you've created and um it looks like as if it's done it's worked out well for you man so um yeah every with every every cloud there's a silver lining i'm glad to hear that you're you're, you're thriving you're doing well i mean generally from a health perspective is it now now the surgery's done are you you in you in good functional and physical health are you able to do whatever you want with your body or are there some limitations no, I, I, I fool a lot of people. I think for, I, I, I don't like to complain. So on my outer shell, I think people look at me and say, wow, especially for 44 years old, he, he looks in pretty good shape and I do everything I can. Um, and obviously I'm very blessed to have a network of people. I could, I could pick up my cell phone and get, you know, some of the greatest minds in the world to give me advice, help me out. But I have I still live in chronic pain from the the first four surgeries that didn't work. They did so much damage. One of them, they went through my stomach because they saw an abnormality on the anterior portion of the, the sacrum and the spine. So they went in through my stomach to get to my spine. So you could imagine the damage that that type of surgery does if I knew what I know now about anatomy and physiology, I would have never let them do that surgery. Uh, but I didn't know any better at the time. They called it, you know, they downplayed it, said, oh, we're going to do a biopsy and get a little chunk of your bone and send it to the lab. And, and just so we could see what's going on, that surgery took seven hours. I, to this day, I have pain, numbness shooting down my leg from it. So yeah, I'm I'm actually very limited in what I could do, but I I do my best not to dwell on it and I just focus on the the few things I can do. I try to do them really well and and I try to put my time and energy into my clients. It keeps me keeps me more sane that way. Yeah, and I th- I think uh, the exterior uh, it looks like you're in great shape and obviously uh, a great you know gr- uh, great career and you know what you're doing and you look happy. So Looks like you're at least externally. Uh, you're presenting a great, a great story, and I'm sure, I'm sure you, you really, um, you are satisfied with your life and where things are, albeit a little bit of a blipper, a blip on the road. Yes. Um, there's always, there's always many people dealing with many worse things yeah. than me, so I am not complaining. We've all got our struggles, right? Yes. Um, the, I, I thought it was quite interesting because I literally just had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, which aired yesterday with a professor in Perth, Australia, called Peter O'Sutherland. He is um, 
it was the last podcast in our in, in our show, and he talks specifically about back pain, and he's dedicated his whole life to both being a researcher, clinical researcher of back pain, as well as um, servicing people with a variety of pain issues. And it was absolutely fascinating. And he said something that you've kind of alluded to, which there has been so much surgery done onto backs, which was completely unnecessary. Now you've got something more than psychosocial. You had physical, mechanical issues as a result of a tumor. However, there's many, many surgeries done on backs, which were completely unavoidable. And then so much opioid use, which has now just exacerbated the problem for those individuals. So this is, um, yeah, it's very well timed given the discussion we've got on this show. So thank you for sharing it, Joe. Oh, no, that's, 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 uh, yeah, glad to, I appreciate you bringing that up too. That was, thankfully I got in a little bit before cause the, the doctor started, started pumping me up with the, with the Percocets and you know, that thankfully that was a little bit later. It was all Advil and more anti-inflammatory. Uh, but I didn't know any better when it started getting bad, like year four and five, that's when they started prescribing the opioids. And, and I got not unknowing to me, full blown, uh, addicted to those wow. for a good four to five years. Um, just because I, I didn't, that's not my expertise. Doctor prescribed said, Hey, take two, two of these every three hours. I did it for a couple months, said, I don't want to take it anymore. Stopped cold Turkey one day and literally thought I was dying and had no idea, figured it out. The doctor didn't even tell me I, I went online and this is like right when the internet is like first becoming kind of popular. So it wasn't as easy to get information back then, but I go online and I Google, you know, like, uh, stop Percocet and opioids and everything that popped up even back then. Like, oh yeah, if you stop cold Turkey, you could go into withdrawal. You could have a seizure. I'm like, how did my doctor prescribe this for five years? And then tell me now nah, nothing will, nothing really could bad, nothing bad could happen. It, so I I've been down that road too. Um, so I get it. So the more information you could get out there on that, I'm very passionate about that as well. Um, one more question about your your kind of backstory before we get into some of the the meatier practical stuff for the show. Um, so, what is your what would be your kind of main kind of credentials or or should I say um, uh, the athletes that you've worked with or the the biggest references that you'd say like this you know I've arrived you know I <laughs> these the, these are my results um and I know this is this is a global audience we do have a bias towards the UK but I'm sure if you <laughs> reference some of the people you've worked with people will nod their head and be familiar yeah so I, for me and I, and I I'm glad you brought that up cuz when people say credentials they're normally speaking about Certs. academics yeah. and certifications and now you know, this might sound weird because I have my own certification with Jim Smith. We and we're we're very very proud of our CPPS certification, but that came about basically by necessity because both he and I have have fifty combined years in the in the industry, and between the two of us, we had every single certification that was out there, and this was like ten years ago we had this conversation where we were talking about certifications because I had all my certifications hanging on my wall, my college degree. And A, I realized none of the athletes cared. 
they, they could care less. All they cared about was results and what other athletes I trained. But B, we just got in this discussion one day. I'm like, did you ever realize once you we have all these certifications, but when that that first client walks in your your gym doors and you go to train him or her, you realize nothing you learned in those certifications really helps you when that client you go to do something that you learned in the certification, yet that real human being says to you, oh, I just had knee surgery, or to your point, my, my low back is really tight, it hurts, I, I, I can't squat without pain, or I can't deadlift without pain. You have to immediately think on your feet, come up with plan B, you know, assess that client, figure out what's wrong, how to help them, and they don't teach you that type of stuff troubleshooting and and progressions and regressions you're just kind of memorizing muscles and certain exercises but none of the certifications we had helped us in the real world so that's how the curriculum of our certification came about we said what are all the things we wish our certifications taught us that first day we got into this industry and started working with real clients Let's put that together. And it took, we knew each other for close to six, seven years uh, before we finalized that curriculum. That that wasn't like an overnight or a weekend thing. Like we really took our time and mapped out what is the best possible information we could pack in to a weekend um, and, and educational resources that, that our coaches could go home with. And that's how that came about. So uh, as far as credentials, I, yes, I'm very proud. I, I have, I have the base knowledge of, of a degree in exercise physiology, a four-year degree, have that basic knowledge of anatomy and biomechanics, which I think is important. But besides this, our own certification and, and teaching that, uh, year after year, my credentials are the athletes that, that hang on my wall. Like I said, I've had over a uh, hundred NFL players from all 32 NFL teams. I've, I've worked with rugby players from all over the world, Olympic figure skaters, skiers, um, you know, MMA fighters. It's just so many more athletes than, than I could even remember at this point. And that's, that's what I think my credentials are is just not only 22 years of experience training, athletes, but 22 years of actually getting real measurable results with athletes. That's, that's what matters. Not the, not the degrees or the certifications hanging on the wall, uh, which is why I don't have any more. All my degrees and, and certifications are, are in a box in my basement collecting dust right now. Absolutely. Well, look, the, the results are performance and accolades, right? You know, what have people done as a result of your coaching? What have they gone to win, achieve, earn, become as a result of your work? And um, yeah, I've listened to other podcasts of you. I follow your podcast too. And yeah, you've, uh, you've touched and worked with some, some stars. So it's, it's, it is a true honor to be getting your wisdom. Now let's get into that wisdom. So <laughs> we, we, we spoke on, uh, on episode 107, we spoke about what it was called how to improve sports performance and body mechanics in the gym. Um, now I'm not going to try and, um, do a poor job of expressing what 
uh, your CPPS course is. But one of the things that I know you spoke about to some degree is sports-specific training, and specifically around helping improve speed and performance, uh, and how you can augment that with work in the gym or or kind of um, strength and conditioning work on the field. Now, Bryn, this was probably Bryn's weakest um, explanation of what he learned because. Uh, I, I just don't think this is his his specialism. He's a he's a generalist. Uh, he's trying to help general people get fit and healthy and improve their lives. Uh, but he is leaning in on trying to understand how he can work with athletes too. So let's spend a little bit of time on that. One of the questions we posed and we kind of stumbled around it was this idea of um, are is hypertrophy training, you know, going to the gym and trying to increase muscle mass, conducive to developing speed? Do they go together? Are they complementary? Or actually, are they contradictory? And how should we think about those two disciplines? I don't know where you want to start with that, Joe. Yeah, so I think the simplest way to start is, and I, it, it annoys a lot of people, but it, the the answer, the the broad answer is it depends on the the athlete, um, their level, their 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 training age. How long have they been training? Is this is this a fifteen year old kid who never lifted a weight before? Skinny, weak. You know that kid putting on some muscle is probably ninety nine point nine percent going to make him or her faster. They're going to run faster, jump higher. Um, the lower the level, the more you will get out of general strength work. And this, I just know, man. I, I wish. I, I could have done more studies than I could count, but my first, the first five years in this industry, I worked predominantly with kids and I continued working with them throughout my career. So 22 plus years, thousands and thousands of, you know, 13 to 15 year olds, I could tell you that first year or two of strength training improves everything. You run faster, you jump higher, everything gets better in 99.9% of that, that population of younger, lower level um, type of athletes. I, I think Brent did talk about, we joke and we use the scale. Um, it, and I stole this from Dave Tate of Elite, Elite FTS, but he, he mentions how working with powerlifters, he grades them from shit, suck, good, great. Like if you are, you know, absolutely, and this is no disrespect, he says it kind of in a fun way, but if, you know, you've never trained before, you know, jokingly he says, you're just shit, you're weak, you've never done anything. Going from that to sucking, you know, like now you're just kind of bad. You go from there or even from suck to good kind of average, just doing the basics is going to improve everything mm. where it gets a little trickier is now you have that stud athlete. Even if he's, I've had some high school kids that are only 17, 18 years old, but they're at a very high level, you know, division one college scholarships. You can't just, there comes a time where you can't just say, get him stronger and he'll run faster and jump higher. There, there is that point of diminishing returns. And, you know, an extreme example would be look at a power lifter. If we take an elite level power lifter who could squat a thousand pounds and bench press 700 pounds, 
getting that guy or you know girl to squat a thousand fifty pounds certainly isn't going to necessarily make them faster or jump higher. It's probably going to take away from it because it's going to require so much time and energy to get to that point. They're already as strong as they need to be in order to run fast, but they don't have any of the other components. So taking it one step further, once you go from that beginner phase, then, and this is still simplifying it a little bit, but I think for the majority of the audience, this is where they, what they need to know. And this, this will get 99% of the athletes that most people are working with better. Think more relative strength, or I talk about mass specific force into the ground when you sprint. So the, the predominant factor in running faster and sprinting faster is your ability to apply force into the ground with each step. That's what's going to propel you forward in space. You're going to cover more ground and, and your sprint times are going to be better. But there is a catch to that force into the ground. One, obviously, the force needs to be applied in the right direction. If you're just stomping your foot straight down into the ground, you're not necessarily going to run faster, propel yourself forward. So we need that force to be applied in the proper direction and, and speed. But we want for speed training, if I can make a general statement, you want to be as strong as possible at the lightest possible body weight. That that's what's referred to as mass specific force. If I'm light, but I'm very strong, I'm probably going to run fast. And of course, there's going to be exceptions. There's always that 1% exceptions to the rules. But you you take the majority of, of people out there. I'm not talking about the 1% of the 1%. Majority of people out there, get them stronger in relation to their body weight. And they're probably going to run faster and jump higher. Because just having extra mass, you give me a big, strong guy that could bench, squat, and deadlift a lot. The more you weigh, even if it's all muscle, the, the greater the mass, the greater the gravitational pull. So when, when that person's going to run, just by weighing more, there's more weight driving down into the ground, which makes it harder for you to propel yourself forward in space. So um, uh, hopefully that kind of makes sense to start clearing it up with regards to strength training and and its carry over to speed. Um, so maybe we can just put a universal um, set of characters in front of us so we get a sense of this. So if if I just like follow the you know the af- athletic track and field space, right? So you've got hundred meter runners, two hundred meter runners, four hundred meter runners, and then you know the endurance runners. Um, you progressively see them from 100 meters going upwards. They they start probably the the, the bulkiest at 100 meters, and they 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 thin out, right? 102 100 meter runners are, I would say, generally, you know, they're the most shredded, they're the most bulky out of the athletes. Um, but you do have exceptions. You have the likes of Usain Bolt, right? Who incredibly tall. I'm sure you you've got some theories as to why he runs so fast. I wouldn't say he's particularly big, I and mean, he's got muscle on his frame for sure but he's not particularly big like some of the other 100-meter sprinters, some of the US sprinters. Um, so I guess, you know, the question that was coming from me uh, a few episodes ago was, you know, what, 
is is that bulk, whether it be mass, weight, or just the bulk, at what point is there diminishing returns? And what do you need necessary to be able to apply that maximal force? And as you say, there are exceptions to the rules. There are people of all different body shapes that can run incredibly fast. Uh, and then I think about my personal experience, uh, where my focus is, is trying to um, apply as much muscle mass onto my frame as possible. And I know I'm not particularly fast, but I've never been fast. I don't, I don't think that's actually my handicap. Um, but if I wanted to get faster, would I would I be doing the wrong thing right now, which is continuing to do the con- conventional lift? So there's a lot of questions in there, but let us kind of look at those gen- generic frames in in athletic track and field, try and unpack that a little bit. So people that are trying to think about, I want to get faster, whether it's on the rugby pitch or whether it's on a soccer pitch or whether it's just dynamic movement on like, you know, on the tennis court, how much muscle should they be trying to build? How should they be trying to build muscle? And when is a soccer player going in the gym, doing leg extensions and squats and deadlifts? When is that counterproductive to their sport? I love to get into, although I work with more football players, but I do have a theory. We work with quite a few soccer players here. um, And what I've seen with, with soccer players is they do way too much just jogging and distance running, kind of mm. kind of moderate intensity running. And I know the majority of the game is spent jogging and even you walk more than you sprint in a soccer game. But and I know they've done time motion analysis on this. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. I think like 10 percent or maybe less than 10 percent of the game you're actually sprinting but it's that percentage those are the game changing moments that that eight to twelve percent when you are sprinting that's when goals are being scored and so i i have a whole theory on on how soccer players should train i think they need a little more strength power short sprint speed training into their their programs instead of just going for these mile long runs and, and jogs all the time but to to backtrack that, so simply put, the shorter the distance, the race, going back to your 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter example, the shorter the distance, you. so first we need to know, you say, if, if I want to get faster, do I lift? Is it going to be counterproductive? How do I know? First, we, I need to know your goal. Do you want to get faster as a 40 yard dash guy, as a 100 meter guy, as a 400 meter guy? Because that's going to determine, that's going to give me a, a basic outline, a starting point of where my brain's going to start going. Because I know the shorter the distance of the race, the more heavily, generally speaking, it is going to rely on strength and explosive power. That's why sprinters generally look like what they look like, and 400 meter runners look like what they look like, and marathon runners look like what they look like. There's still a strength component to running a marathon, but clearly not as important as you trying to win Olympic gold in in the 100 meters. So we we have that information. We know that. I don't think too many people are going to argue with that. Where it gets tricky, and and this just – you brought up Usain Bolt. One of the things that I can't mimic – Usain Bolt, well, there's many things that me and you can't mimic that Usain Bolt does, but 
his his leg length, his limb length is certainly one thing that's just genetic that he's blessed with. And that certainly contributes to his ability to cover ground. Uh, if, if you look at the last Olympics, he ran 100 meters in 44 steps if, or 41 steps, if I remember correctly. And the next closest to him was 44 steps. The rest of the the competition, it took them 41 to 46 steps to run 100 meters where he did it in 41 steps. So he's he's covering more ground. Now, that's a combination of force applied into the ground in the right direction in, in decreasing increments of time with his leg length and the muscle fiber makeup, which is, um, you know, you can bias depending on your training, but a lot of that is genetic. So that's the problem when we start looking at, it's cool to see what high level athletes are doing. And we could certainly learn things from other athletes and other coaches, but you always have to treat the individual because if you try to run and train like Usain Bolt, but you're five foot seven, you're never going to be him. I don't care how good of a coach I am. You are like, you, you're not going to run the same as him. So you can't mimic his program, his style. Uh, so that's where an assessment comes in. And this is a big part of our CPPS certification. You need to treat each athlete, each individual individually. We need to know their starting point, their goal, and and where where are they strong? Where are they weak? So why do some people respond incredibly well to strength training and and they run faster and jump higher why do some claim oh when i lift weights i i get strong but i get slow and i get tight obviously that could they could be training wrong and we could talk about specific variables how to train strength train for speed but we we do and this is just a very simple test i want to give the audience stuff to take away um you want a simple test that will work with, again, the majority of people out there, the 99 percentile. Assess their vertical jump, a regular vertical jump with a counter movement. You know, stand up and then dip down and jump as high as you can. Measure that and then have them rest a couple minutes and do a static jump where you lower yourself, pause for three to five full seconds. So you're you're holding your position, that, that bottom position, the bottom position of the jump. Pause for 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, and then without hitching, just right from the position you're in, jump up as high as you can. That, we call that a static jump. That static jump, if, if you are someone who is stronger, more more strong than you are kind of elastic and reactive, your, your static jump is going to be very close. I've even had athletes that their static jump is the same as their counter movement jump. Those are athletes that we would classify as force dominant or strength dominant athletes. The more elastic, like twitchy, whatever, you, whatever, you know, verb you want to use to describe them. The ones that are better when you 
you let them kind of exploit the stretch reflex and they're using momentum and they're using that elastic component of their muscle. If they, if their vertical jump is, you know, eight, nine, 10 inches higher than their static jump, you know that they are a faster athlete than they are stronger. So for most athletes, improving their weakness will generally help them get get faster, get better. So if that athlete who has a uh, a static jump of 30 inches and a regular vertical jump of 30 inches, that's an athlete that's already pretty strong. Now, you might you don't you don't want to neglect strength training altogether, but strength might be programmed as more maintenance. Let's maintain the strength this athlete has, but let's program more plyos, more jumps, more sprints, uh, more dynamic effort type training in the weight room, Olympic lifts, or you know, um, submaximal weights performed faster for for multiple sets of low reps. That's how you you train the individual and get results. And that's why my answer it, it annoys people, but it, it's always it depends. It depends on who am I training and what is their starting point. What's their genetic makeup, et cetera, et cetera. Love that. I really love that test that I, I can see and understand how that works, right? The, the idea that are you are you are you uh, strength driven? Or are you elastic power dynamic kind of momentum driven? And if I compare Bryn, for example, to myself, we are the polar opposites, you know, I am I'm the classic kind of strength guy. I'm, I'm not saying I'm particularly strong, but that's definitely my bias. Uh, you're stronger than you are fast. Absolutely. Like you get me doing plyos, you get me running, sprinting. Everything just looks in slow motion, man. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Uh, I was never one for um, being picked for any kind of sprinting objectives at school. But here's, so, you know, I, I, I'm sorry to but so here's the thing that, and I, I'm, I don't know you, but I'm assuming when you go to the gym, you're probably lifting way more than you are sprinting because we like to do the thing. <laughs> You are better at zero sprinting, (laughs) you know, and, and Bryn probably might gravitate more towards, Hey, let me go for a run. Let me do some sprints today. Like I I don't, I don't dislike lifting, but I, you know, he's, he's maybe you might be the one saying, Hey, let's lift today. And he's like, Oh no, let's go to the track. You know, you're generally like train what you're good at. And usually again, you could get into an argument with higher level athletes. They're, there are some times where you might just want to double down on your strength and and make that and I, I use strength in air quotes I mean, whatever your strength is um, double down on that uh, which which is more the exception to the rule I, more for the masses listening right now if you do that vertical jump with a counter movement compared to a static jump and then focus on the area that that client is weaker at 99 out of 100 times that is going to get you quicker results uh, that you're going to be amazed by uh, with the majority of the population because it's things that they have neglected because they are not good at them yeah yeah absolutely and uh, there's definitely a bias I don't know you'll know Christian Thibodeau right 
Yes, of course. <laughs> so I've had him on the podcast four times. He's a, he's, he's a fascinating guy. He's just got so much bloody scientific knowledge. It's insane. <laughs> and we end up speaking a lot about um, neurotransmitters and uh, neurotypes. And he talks about uh, the, the neurotransmitter dominance can dictate really the kind of athlete or the kind of trainer that you are. And um, he has me down to a T. He knows me more than most people know me purely just by knowing my neurotype and so my preferences and what I enjoy when I'm in the gym. I prefer the robotic strength movements. Whereas I know Jim, for uh, Bryn, for example, he prefers the dynamic, functional, sprint, move, uh, plyometric. He just likes to have fun. He wants to play <laughs> more than he wants to train. Um, and that's great for him. And that that's what fills his bucket. So if you are just neurologically as well as physically better suited to strength versus speed uh, and momentum can you still work with an athlete like that if they 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 have their preferences they have their neurological and genetic biases but they also want to get faster can can you work with those people a hundred percent yes you without question you could you could put anyone can get faster. We all have, you know, we have our genetic limitations and not everyone contrary to the world we live in now. And I know, you know, people get very, everybody's very sensitive and you're supposed to tell everyone they could be anything they want to be, but <laughs> that's not the way I was raised. I was, you know, I, my dad was a guy that to this day tells it like it is. And no, not everyone could play in the NBA. Not everyone could be a pro soccer player. Not everybody could play in the NFL. It's I you and and it is it's a shame because I have some of the hardest working, I mean, dedicated best kids in the world that I've trained never made it. I, I wanted to see them make it so bad because they worked ten times harder than the majority of my NFL clientele, but no matter, and they improved tremendously, but their improvement was still, you know, only 60% of an NFL guy who could come in and, and work out at 70% effort. And, but he just has genetically the height, the strength, the just, just God given, you know, athletic ability and talent. And it's a shame, but, that's the reality. Um, but the good news is, while we all can't be professional athletes, 100%, I, I, and I, I'm not even, I'm not bragging this, any good trainer should be able to say this. I have in 22 years, not an, there hasn't been one athlete, one general pop client that has walked into my gym and not improved. Everybody can improve. Where our our genetic limit is that's going to be different but everybody could at least improve from where they are right now there's hope there's still hope yes <laughs> it's just it's training smart uh like you know now just because we get that information and like i said i think it's it's a simple way but it does work i think most trainers they Everybody, again, like with speed training, Usain Bolt comes up all the time. He is the single fastest human being in the world. Like he's one of one. So 
trying to mimic what he does or the amount of parents I've dealt with working with young kids. I, I am not to get off on a tangent, but I am against early specialization with young kids. I think when you're young from the time you're born to, to 10, 12 years old, your kids should play every sport, experience everything. That's what builds the best foundation of just coordination, relative, relative body strength, just general GPP, let them do everything. And then gravitate towards what you like the best, what you're the best at. But these parents would come in and little Johnny is in seven different basketball leagues, you know, or what, you know, these girls blowing out their ACLs at 12 years old because they're on five different traveling volleyball teams and they all use Tiger Woods as the example. Well, Tiger Woods, dad had a golf club in his hand at two years old. Awesome. I know I know Tiger Woods' story. It, it that is true. It worked for him. There's 10 million other young kids that their parents screwed them up by by trying to get them to specialize early. So in, instead of you know focusing on that one percent of the one percent, let's look at the 99.9% and what's worked for them and and it's non-specialization during those first 10 to 12 mm. years. So uh, I, I, I hear you. I mean, I just as, as a, my personal anecdote, we, um, our daughter is blessed with, with just like swimming genes. Like she's just, she was born to swim, literally came out, came her, her mother's <laughs> womb and she was ready to go. Like she, she's been absolutely comfortable with the water from day zero and she's doing phenomenally well we're so proud she loves it she will train as much as you can throw at her uh, she keeps winning awards she's just doing really really well i have high hopes for her if she continues to be interested in it um but i also know that she's going to grow she's going to have growth spurts she's yep. going to have periods of her life when this isn't going to be fun and i don't want to hold uh, or constrain her both in terms of one a single sport and two an obsession about this sport if things change um so we're encouraging her to play as many sports as possible i guess at That's the same tough. breath though i know she's doing incredibly well and it'd be wrong of us to to dilute that too much do you not agree yes. like there's like okay if you if you see raw raw talent expressed early and the kid wants to do it and they're enjoying it. Um, I guess if you dilute that too much, you take away from their potential somewhat yeah. little. And, and that you see, and, and your daughter might be definitely not, she's not in the 99% of, you know, she, if you're saying day one, definitely had, you know, super comfortable in the water and, and loves swimming right now. Yes. I, I think you're, you you're doing exactly what I would do. I would, I would I would tell her every you know every season. Hey, do you wanna? Would you like to try basketball, soccer, whatever you know? And just let her know. Hey, we're not pushing you to do this. If you love swimming, we support you a thousand percent. But you're young. Try try other things. But certainly, if she's at that high of a level and and kind of that advanced compared to other girls her age, yes, you you might definitely bias the swimming and and just keep open to other things but um i wouldn't yeah you, i'm not saying make her do five different sports uh, if she's really that good at swimming definitely not i i think you're going you're going about it exactly 
how I would is is let her focus on the swimming. But certainly if she wants to try something else, uh, now's the time or, or the next couple of years is is definitely the time to do it. Joe, so why don't we why don't we close this kind of practical section of our discussion on uh, and and I know that this can go this could go long uh, and that's not the intent. I just want to give a sense of what training for speed would look like. And maybe let me just preface this with this. Here's my kind of curiosity coming in again. Um when I think about speed, I'm not too clear as to how much is speed training relevant to improving my coordination so I can, I don't know, I can skip faster and in a more coordinated way. Uh, How much of it is muscle development? How much of it is just pure kind of power training? Uh, And how much of it is just reactional strength, uh, reactional capability? So coordination, muscle development, power, reaction, I'm sure there's other things. But, you know, are you, are you, you know, predominantly focusing on one of those things to bring an athlete up and get them faster? Or is it all of those and more? Yeah. And again, I'll, I'll, I, I always like my podcast and stuff to be as practical as possible. So yes, you could go down the rabbit hole, 20 different directions, but for the masses after that initial phase, like we said, you never trained before you have a young kid, general strength training in that eight to 12 rep range, you know, even three sets of 10 generally getting that kid, or or if you're 40 years old and you never lifted before, doing some general strength work in general rep ranges, that eight to 12 rep range, you'll you'll run faster, you'll jump higher, um, just doing the basics. Now, once you have a little bit of strength and experience in the weight room, even if you're not at a super high level, just let's say the average person out there has been training a couple of years on and off, but your your main goal you're going to the weight room because you want to sprint faster, some general guidelines. And so I'll, I'll talk about the biggest mistakes I see and why so many people associate strength training with big bulky muscles. Yeah. You might get jacked, but you get slow, you get stiff. It's because they're training wrong. They're looking at it from a muscular standpoint and a feel standpoint. And and I have this issue with a lot of pro athletes too. They think when you lift, you, you have to feel the burn. You have to get a pump. It's about being sore the next day. And if you're training for speed, it's all the opposite. Like I always say a pump or, or more so like that lactic acid burn or that, that burning sensation What most people strive for when they're training you your muscles start burning you start getting too big of a pump when you're training that is that's the enemy of speed training we want more neurological type Mm -hmm. training so you're not going to get a pump many times you're not going to be sore at all the next day many times you should be leaving the weight room with more energy and feeling better than you did when you walked in because your CNS is in that heightened state because what we're looking to do is, and it would be a combination of heavy, low rep strength work with full rest intervals. 
So we want maximal effort, maximal contraction, mass, maximal muscular recruitment. We want to really, you know, stimulate those high twitch, the, the type 2B fibers. So we're looking, you know, like a, a trap bar deadlift, doing heavy singles or doubles, um, not going to failure, though. So I always say take a weight that you know you could get for a, a five rep max and do sets of two or three with it. Just do more sets. There's an inverse relationship between reps and sets. So generally speaking, I like multiple sets, low reps for strength development, for sprinting speed, especially at the start. You know, you need that ability at some point, you, whether if you're running a, a hundred meter or you're a football player and you're, you're, you know, you're in your stance waiting for the quarterback to, to start the play, you're going from a dead stop to overcoming inertia, overcoming your body weight. So getting strong in, you know, deadlift variations and box squat variations is very important for that. But generally, uh, with with most of your lifts, you want to stick in that that two to five rep range on the main exercises. And then certainly you could support, you know, you're going to do some accessory work for the for the upper back, um, the the glutes and hamstrings. You could do some more traditional like eight to 10 rep stuff but the majority of your training heavy or submaximal for speed but either way it's low reps it's full recovery it's based on performance not a feeling not a burning not a pump mm-hmm. not not muscular soreness the next day think more from a neurological standpoint than a muscular standpoint that's how you train to improve your sprinting speed. And just to kind of put a, wrap that up a little bit, this is just an interesting fact that people generally kind of get a kick out of. And again, this might not work, oh, and it doesn't for the, the 1%, the, the super high level, fastest people in the world, but 99% of the population, even, even higher level athletes like, high school, college, higher level athletes, you give me, you, I, I never have to see an athlete. If you, we go on the street right now and we grab a hundred people and we all have that, we have them do a max chin up test. And I'm not getting a, you might think I'm going way off on a tangent, but this actually rel- um, uh, ties into what, I, what I'm speaking about. We have a hundred different people from off the street do a max chin up test average people. I never see them. You just give me a, a sheet that has one through 100. Here's the person who did the most chin-ups. Here's the person who did the least chin-ups. That's going to be 99% accurate from the fastest person to the slowest. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with running faster? Seems like there's no correlation, but what is, what is chin-ups? It's a test. While yes, you know, your, your upper back, uh, and the postural muscles, which are important for sprinting that that's part of it. But the main factor is generally speaking, the chin up is a great indicator of your relative strength. How strong are you in relation to your body weight? Mm. Think of what the people that could do a lot of chin ups look like. You don't see the big fat, strong guy at your gym 
banging out sets of 20 chins. He might bench, you know, 400 pounds, but he's not, he's not banging out chin-ups on the chin-up bar because he might be maximally strong, but relative to his body weight, if he weighs 350 pounds and he bench presses 400 pounds, relatively speaking, he's really not that strong. The, the 170, 180 pound guy who could bench press over 300 pounds, that's the, that's the person who's banging out 15, 20 chin-ups. That dude's going to beat the big, fat, strong guy in a race. And I, I bring that up because when I was working predominantly with kids, 7 to 13 years old, we had over 10,000 athletes over a five-year period that we evaluated with all their numbers in a database. And one of the, the initial tests was a, an electrically timed 40-yard dash, so no human error involved. And another one of the tests was a max chin-up test, 99 percentile. And again, these are just average kids, not, not Usain Bolt. But 99% of the time, the kid with the fastest 40 did the most chin-ups in that group. And it's because they're strong in relation to their body weight, goes back to what I was talking about, mass-specific force being strong in relation to your body weight. Uh, and the chin-ups are a great little, kind of a sneaky test nobody thinks about. If, if you're strength training, and most people don't have the luxury of training in a facility where you could time your 40-yard dash or your 100-meter sprint. So if, if you're, you're training with the goal of sprinting faster, but you don't have a lot of access to a track or you live on the East Coast like me and it's freezing cold and snowing this time of year, if you want to have a good general idea if your strength training efforts are going to carry over to your sprinting speed, but you can't run, periodically test your max chin-ups. If your chin-ups are going up, if your chin-up performance is increasing with your lifts, you're getting stronger in relation to your body weight and there's a good chance that strength that you're developing in the weight room is going to carry over to your speed. If your trap bar deadlift goes up and your squat goes up, but your chin-ups go from you were doing 10 chin-ups uh, three months ago, and now you test yourself and you only do seven, you probably added some extra bulk on your body that's not going to help with your sprinting speed. It, it's going to act more like an anchor than, than it is an engine. So that's where you need to look at either your training and or diet is obviously a whole other discussion, which becomes very important. But I throw that out there because I don't speak about it a lot, but it's something that uh, is very helpful and and a lot of people find very interesting. That is super interesting, Joe. I'm going to go test my chin-ups now. I uh, know I don't. I don't do too yeah, many you, of them. You, so. you can pull me out on it. <laughs> test your chin-ups. Train. You know, if, if you do kind of start focusing more on strength training for speed, uh, test your chin-ups again a couple weeks from now and and you tell me if you're getting relatively stronger the chin-ups should go up if you're getting stronger but your speed isn't improving chin-ups are probably going to be about the same or 
or they're going to get worse. So um, kind of sub-question to that, what about momentum-based training? So uh, I'm probably not using the right terminology. What about Olympic lifting? Or what about doing chin-ups, you know, um, you know, the CrossFit style, you know, where you're kind of jacking yourself up with momentum. I forget what the, the chin-up style oh, is uh, called. Yeah, kipping chin-ups. Kipping chin-ups. That, that's yeah. it. So what, what about when, yeah, just generally momentum-based training, Olympic training, all that kind of stuff. Does that have... Uh, a lot of use in your gyms when you're training for speed? Yes. Although, so two things, <laughs> the, so we, the, we call it reactive training, we call it what you want, but I, I understand what you're referring to or dynamic effort. We, I refer to that as the dynamic effort day where we're, we're our main lifts or the main movements are we're we're utilizing the stretch reflex and, and, doing things like reactive jumps and quicker lifts. Ironically, the two things you named, we don't do. I personally don't program. I freaking hate the kipping chin-up. Uh, I We do dynamic effort chin-ups, but I like to do them with a band. I, I anchor, it, it's hard to explain, but basically the resistance would be coming from the ground. You anchor the band from the ground or the bottom of your rack. And then you you strap the band around. You either wear a belt, or you could do two bands around the bottom of a rack, and you crisscross them right. over your shoulder. So they're in they're in um an X fashion over your shoulders, pulling you down. And then we do a chin up where dead hang, pull up as fast as you can, and and you you do them controlled but the concentric is as fast as humanly possible Got it. i don't like that swinging kip up kipping chin up just again I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of athletes that are making a lot of money and i just feel like for their overall shoulder health um that that's uh i'm always weighing risk reward mm-hmm. and that's to me way more risk than reward there's just too many better ways to get that training effect i for younger trainers out there listening right now always ask yourself why pretend like i'm peeking through your gym window and i'm going to call you out on every exercise you're doing from the first exercise to the last exercise if i walk into your gym and say why are you doing that why why are you having him do that you should have an answer and if if you don't you need to sit back and and think about what what are you doing what why you know what's your program what's the goal so that's something that i think is very important so when i ask myself why why do a kipping pull up why why do an olympic lift most people would say oh to get more you know quote unquote explosive to get more powerful i want to improve my speed <clears throat> i i want to get more explosive all right that's great now I got to weigh the risk reward. I don't like the risk reward of a kipping chin up. I I rather do um if I'm going to do a chin up, I rather add some band resistance, a little more controlled um and just focus more on the concentric explosive contraction. I don't like them kind of hanging on tendons and ligaments mm-hmm. uh, on their on their shoulders and connective tissue. Olympic lifts are phenomenal if you could teach them and the athlete can perform them adequately. I can tell you most football players, wrestlers, like most players I work with suck 
at Olympic lifts and they it takes them too long to get good enough at it to get a training effect. And many times guys are hiring me in a very short window. I got two months, I got three months. So I don't want to spend six weeks, you know, minimum trying to get them to perfect this lift when I ask myself, why am I doing this? Oh, to, to get more explosive, to improve, you know, their their speed strength, to improve their power. All right, well, can I do that same thing with some reactive hurdle hops? Can I do a, a dynamic effort box squat where I load 50% of their one RM on the bar and I have them do two rep sets really fast because they're already pretty good at squatting? And when I ask myself those questions, usually what I find is there are just way too many med ball throw variations, jump variations, and even even some barbell lifts that are way less technical than the Olympic lifts, yet produce the same end result that I'm looking for. They just do it faster. I could start getting a training effect day one as opposed to week six. So that's the way I look at um, training for speed. Yes, 100% we we incorporate dynamic movements or momentum-based movements into our programming. Uh, We we have a full day dedicated to that, both for upper and lower body, and sometimes even full body lifts if athletes could only train with us once or twice a week. But the way we go about training for that is the least technical exercises – that yield the quickest results, um, you know, in in the shortest amount of time. That's quite um, scary when you think about it, Joe, because you've just talked about how, um, you know, these fit, capable, um, usually genetically gifted kids aren't yep. very good at Olympic lifting, yet you go to a CrossFit gym box or you go to any other kind of similar class-based facility and what are they doing day one? They're doing Olympic lifts. We have uh, amateurs. That's crazy. Yes, that's um, that's my my problem. Not even just to pick on CrossFit because there's bad gyms, you know, everywhere doing all kinds of training. Um, But yeah, the 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 gyms that I've walked in to and seen the majority of them, you know, you have a class of twenty people doing barbell snatches from the floor you know, 60 year old women for, you know, out of shape guys. Like these are people that should be mastering a push up, a body weight squat, not, not barbell snatches for high reps, you know, four time in a fatigue state. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Let's, let's not go there, but yeah, I think we're on the same page. Um, okay. Let's try and wrap, um, this, this speed thing up with just one, one last piece then. So, um, you spoke, you've mentioned lots of different kind of variations of dynamic training. You spoke about med balls, you use plyos, you know, jumping. Um, when it comes when it comes to training, you've spoken obviously about you know strength training, regular reps, as well as lots of sets, but sm- um, sm- uh, smaller reps just to get that kind of maximal strength benefit as well. How much how much strength training focus? Sorry, how much speed training focus is there on really that ability to coordinate your muscles and to react. Uh, you know, because I, I suspect that for me is probably my weakest area is my ability to 
you know, think I want to move and then move quickly in the right direction quick enough and then just continue to repeat that. I mean, as an example, I'm, I'm okay at skipping now. I can't do um, double unders, but um, whatever they're called. But I was really rubbish about six months ago. So I know it's a bit of practice, but I just felt like my whole body was swinging. Nothing was working with each other. Everything was uncoordinated in that movement of just skipping with rope. And now I feel that that there's just that kind of fluidity and rhythm. However, it's it's repetitive. I know what's coming. I'm not surprised. Um, whereas I guess I guess speed is is also about surprise. It's about reaction. It's about say I want to move in this direction quickly and do it, and then being able to shift again and move. How much of your training in the gym is focused on trying to speed up their reactions and their ability to move their muscles in a direction and at the speed they want? So again, and I I will give you an answer, but it depends on the athlete. So just to give you an example, pro football player, NFL player who we're we're getting into the the, the we're in the playoffs now. So we, we're getting some players who didn't make the playoffs and they're gonna start their offseason training now for next year. <clears throat> Excuse me. They come to the gym. They just played a 16-week NFL season. They are top athlete in the world, you know, one of the top football players in the world. There's going to be very, very minimal um, reaction-based training because that they're they're literally professionals at that. Like they, I don't I don't need to go on the field and do reaction drills with them. They just came off of a 16-game NFL season, reacting at the highest of levels. So. With them, it's going to be basic general prep. And <clears throat> that surprises a lot of people because a lot of times they'll see pro athletes, <clears throat> excuse me, in our gym, but they're, they don't know that they're not looking at it as like the time of year it is for them. It's, it's January or February. They don't start training camp again, you know, until the end of, of April. So, we don't need to, and even that is a very low level type of, of mini camp. So we're just working on, on GPP and, and the, the average person is like, oh, that dude plays in the NFL and he, he's, he's just doing that workout. I do more than him. Well, yeah, but he's, he does for a living, uh, you know, what, what you're, you're trying to do here at a very low level in the gym. So he's working on what he needs right now. Now, a high school kid who is third string on the football team and he comes to us and we get a lot of this because we attract, because my gym has a reputation for, you know, being like hard workers and, and it's a private small gym. I don't really, I don't do any advertising. It's people come because they know what we're all about. So I, I, I attract more dedicated and probably more of like the meathead type the, the the athletes that do like to lift weights but we'll get a lot of these quote unquote football players who when i see their film they're not very good at football they're strong sometimes they're even fast but you put them on the field and they don't look strong they don't look fast it's because and this is another one of those things that people don't talk about but it's the truth some people just aren't good at a sport and but again you could get better at and everybody could improve not everybody's going to go to the nfl but everybody could improve so with these type of kids 
we do way more field work and and we incorporate you know true agility training out on i'm i'm fortunate enough that my my little private gym is directly across the street from a full football field so we'll go outside and we'll program some field drills uh you know up to three days a week we're having them work on reaction based stuff tag games uh we we i'm not big into like gimmicks and and gadgets but one one thing that we really like are these these they're very simple it's just a velcro belt it's it's a nylon belt about six feet long you attach it to two people one guy is trying to break away from the belt the other guy is trying to keep the belt connected so you know one is trying to get away the other one is reacting to every single movement that that guy makes so you know those things where you're reacting to a visual stimulus and you have to think on your feet really quick we will incorporate those and then the, depending on the sport if it's a football player then as the season gets closer we'll make those reactive type drills more specific to their sport so then we might actually you know have them if it's a wide receiver he's running routes on a defender uh and, and then you're doing more what true sports specific agility not what most trainers would call you know bouncing on a bosu ball and calling it sports specific when it's the most furthest away thing from from the sport uh you know th there is we'll we'll do more of that true sport specific training uh for those athletes who that's what their weakness is they're strong they're fast maybe but they're just not good at their sport the only way to get better at that is to practice your sport so you become more comfortable your decisions come a little faster and it's amazing i always say this to people anybody ever realize why when you you talk to a college athlete and i always use football because that's our biggest sport but when i say to a college football player that goes to the nfl and makes it to the pros what's the biggest difference every single one of them to a man says the speed of the game like holy crap you don't have a, a split second to think and the play's over you're being tackled you're like it's insane how fast the game is yet when you time like 40 yard dashes and agility 20 yard agility runs of nfl teams those times are way slower than college teams because in the nfl guys are getting older they're a little more beat up they got more miles on them so they're they're physically slower yet everyone talks about how fast the game is why is that it's because these are the best of the best in the world at that sport their decision making ability is so fast they could lose a step on their 40 yard dash lose a tenth of a second here or there they're so quick at making decisions they get to the ball that much faster so you know i'm not saying they're slow by any means but when you're 34 37 you're probably going to be slower than you were at 22 yet the game is faster because of their ability to react and just their overall comfort with the game you only get that by doing 
You want to get more comfortable with sprinting? Sprint. You want to get more comfortable playing soccer? Play soccer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the original question was, how much of it do we program as much as the athlete needs based on the, you know, the, the initial assessment and the, and the history of that athlete? I've loved this conversation, Joe. This has been so interesting. It's so out of my comfort zone. I'm, uh, I can speak so little to this. So it was great to have a true expert talk about this. And um, you've got me, got me curious and, and, and bizarrely kind of a little bit enthusiastic about trying to um, do a bit of speed training when it's the furthest thing from what I do today and it's got no applicability to my life, but I'm still kind of curious. So uh, I I might have a little play. uh, That keeps things interesting and it's fun. We don't all have to be, uh, you know, trying to make it to a professional sport where just to do something and try to improve. I think everyone should do something, whether it's in the gym, in life, uh, you know, get out of your comfort zone. I, I think there's a lot of positive that that comes out of that so yeah keep me posted i love to uh i, I love to see some videos of you sprinting out there oh. jumping sprinting <laughs> and looking like an athlete god damn it no no not yet not yet <laughs> listen man before you go i did us i did say to Bryn i was gonna ask one question from him if you've got the time it's, it shouldn't take long it's really about you as a coach have you, have you got another couple minutes or have we got a I shoot? got i got another 10 minutes if you need it okay all right cool so so, so obviously, um, Bryn has been with you. He spent a couple of days with your team, um, has been following you for ages and is doing great as a coach, a, g- a generalist coach in the gym and just wants to continue to develop his craft and his credibility. So he's always curious to learn from the best, like what helped you get to where you are. Uh, and he asked a couple of questions of me, but I'm going to really put it down into one, which is really about what would you ask your what would you tell your younger self in terms of coaching advice that would help accelerate you to the place you are today whether it's with the route to be follow your path of specific strength and conditioning coach for athletes or generally being so good at you know training people in the gym for general health and weight loss and um, kind of muscle gains what are they and i guess it is a combination of not just the uh, the the practical stuff of in the gym, but it's the it's the emotional, psychological, and kind of relational skills. But how would you condense that? What would you say to the younger Joe DeFranco so you could accelerate your path to where you are today? Maybe get there ten years earlier. The, I don't know if I here. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but because I've done a lot wrong, but I think that might be the when you're asking that question, the first thing that comes to my mind, and it's something that I think. I, I just naturally did well. Um, and it, and while I did some things wrong business wise, I think this is what accelerated my career where I may have taken longer than I, than I have to kind of make it so to speak, but as nothing to do with training and the X's and O's and the science behind training. But I spoke about how, how passionate, I am about this field and that anyone who knows me knows that that is a real thing. Like I truly love my work. It's, it's why I'm able to put the 16 hour days in. And while it's not always easy and and I struggle just like everybody else, a lot of the times it doesn't feel like work. Look, I get to do things like this, talk to you about something I love. Um, and that's why I probably talk way too much on most podcasts because I just genuinely love this. And I do know 
the 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 expression that that always comes into my head is people don't care what you know until they know that you care and i think you talk to any client that's ever trained with me back in 1998 when i started to today i don't think you could find a client that that worked with joe defranco that wouldn't tell you like Yes, I I hope they got great results and they'll say, oh my God, I got so strong. I got so fast working with Joe. The thing that's most important to me is every one of them to a man would tell you, holy shit, man, Joe really cares. Like he's, he, he always texts me back. He would, he would, you know, keep me later if, if the session was going long, but we weren't done, he'd stay later. He'd take me on off days if i didn't have the money to train he would let me train anyway like he he genuinely cared and wanted to help me and and but it's something that you know you asked me the question so i'm talking about it it's it's never spoken about it's not like i'm saying hey johnny i really care about you they they know that from your actions mm-hmm. way too many trainers now on instagram everybody's hashtagging uh, authenticity and be real and be authentic. And that's great, but show me how real you are. Show, the same people are, are using the hashtag be real and, and, and authenticity. They're ripping the online trainers, ripping people off, not sending them programs, overcharging, lying on their, their resumes and their bios, like show me how much you care. And that's, I, I think that is a, a big reason my business grew. Listen, I am not even close to the smartest coach out there. There are so many coaches that are so much smarter than me, science-wise. I got an 890 on my SATs. I don't know if like if if they do the SATs over by you, but that's not a good score. It's it's a laughable score. Um, it, it's like you know you. People getting 1,500, 1,600 on that test. I got 890, but how have I been able to do what I do so long, be successful with no business background or degree? All my clients know that I give a shit, I care, I go that extra mile, I always over deliver, and um, it's so highly underrated. Everybody's trying to, everybody's reading the new studies in, in the, you know, the exercise science journals care more about your clients, genuinely care, listen to them, have their best interest at heart and, and watch what happens to your clientele and your business. I think that's such fantastic advice. I also though can't help but to think some people are born to be empathetic and caring and others less so. <laughs> it's hard to Agreed. really put the other person ahead of them. Uh, and I would say, honestly, I'm not the most empathetic person. Many people in my life would agree, but not in their head violently. <laughs> you know, I, I will give you tough love. I care deeply about your success. But at the same time, I've got very little patience to tolerate people that don't care enough for themselves or don't want to hear hear the message. And now I know that is a lack of empathy because I will not have the patience to work around other people's problems or issues. I would just go, this is what needs to be done. If you don't want to hear it, then 
So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because I will say that self-awareness, that's a quality that most people lack. So you knowing you're like that, I think, is huge and 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 makes you so far ahead of the game because it's funny. I am a very empathetic person. I am people that, you know, I have the the exterior of the gym is this hardcore blue collar type gym, but anyone who knows me knows I am very emotional guy. You get me talking about my family. I cry like a baby. Like I'm it. And to your point, that's it. That's just who I am. It's, it's my genetic makeup. But as passionate as I am about training, I will say this. I, I, and I made an Instagram post about this. One thing you don't want to do with your business is try to attract everyone because when you try to please and attract everyone you end up attracting no one and for me as empathetic as i am when it comes to health and fitness i am just like you said i could i have zero patience for the person that walks into the gym and is complaining i don't want to be here this is too hard i don't want to do it you know if they're questioning everything that i'm doing now I, I'm a different person. The, the switch is flipped and I can't tolerate that. And I've told the story at seminars that the first athlete that I kicked out of my gym and, I, and it, it's, it, doesn't, it wasn't as bad as it sounds. It was a young kid, but his parents were super annoying. I always say, I love questions. If you have questions about my program, ask me all the questions you want because I pride myself on having the why. But as soon as you start questioning me all the time, that's a big difference. Huge difference between- Curiosity versus accusation, yeah. Yes, and questioning me. And I had parents and this kid that were always questioning what I was doing, always unhappy. And my stomach, I would feel sick every time this kid was in my schedule. And it it was, taking away from my other clients, ruining the the culture in my gym. After five or six sessions, gave the kid and his parents a full refund, which was very hard to do at the time because I had no money um, and I needed every penny I could get. And I remember it was a check for $850, which was a ton like that. It was very hard, but I gave it back. And a couple days later, it was amazing what happened throughout the high school's and you know that that kid went back and he told his friends it actually triggered kids that were dedicated and were like oh shit that that storage closet gym that dude if you don't work hard he kicks you out like man that, that place, place must be. be hardcore i started attracting only people who loved training and, and a lot of times it's misconstrued that i only work with pro athletes and high level athletes that's not true i, I mean we've had some, and I, I, I don't say this like trying to be rude or disrespectful, but we've had some of the worst athletes you have ever seen walk into my gym. I do not turn them away if they are willing to do what we say, work hard, bring a positive energy. Those kids, I will have patience for days, years, forever, but you come in and complain, now I'm like you, so and and I don't want I don't I don't want to I don't one second I'm already annoyed I can't tolerate you so I don't want to you know 
I don't want my message to be misinterpreted when I say be empathetic and show everyone that you care. They need to care about themselves first for me to care. And, and that's why I've been around and my gym's been so successful. I don't sugarcoat anything. My, my DeFranco's gym is what it is. It's, it's, it's not the prettiest in the world. We're just super dedicated, driven, and, and, and passionate about what we do. If you want all the bells and whistles and you want to be coddled and, and you, know, you want to be lied to, don't come to me because I don't have any empathy for you. Uh, but think- if you're the other type, come on in. And uh, that's when you see you could see how much I care and and our trainers care. Well, we, we can see you care, man. And I think that was a great mic dropping moment is uh, I think it's the challenge for coaches and PTs the world over, though, which is when you need money and you want to attract clientele, there's many people that want the result really don't want to do the work and yep. when that's your predominant client base how do you demonstrate a level of empathy care how do you go the extra mile how do you keep engaging with people that don't really want you to engage with them but you want the result probably more than they're willing to work to get it i don't want to i don't want to open up that can of worms but i i, I think that's the challenge that pts have across the world is how do you how do you how do you get the clients that want what you have to offer genuinely want what you have to offer and they're willing to do the work ask the question man listen i i've really oh did you want to key off on that just the, the last thing to to touch on that because we just talked about it with our we have a, a private the franco insider uh community that it got brought up last night we do a live q a um every every other tuesday and someone was asking about just getting started and bringing in more clients. And I, I told the story I just told you with, I know it's hard, but don't try to attract everyone just because you need the money right now. Don't forget, and this is just a quick little tip, an actionable type of thing. If you have two clients right now and you, you know, you need to make money, you need more. Everybody's always looking outside, but look from within a lot. A lot of trainers are afraid to ask their existing clients to you know, spread the word like, hey, if you have any and and we we use this terminology, we say, if you have a client that you really love and you care about and it's a great fit, when you ask them to refer some clients, you say, hey, do you know any other people like you? I would love to have them in the program. You have a neighbor, you have a, a family member, a friend like you. And I know it sounds like a nothing thing, but and it doesn't always happen quickly, but that's how you develop an amazing culture. You you make it known. And those people then, people love to have a compliment. So you're complimenting your client like, hey, man, I love you. I care about you. I want more people like you. Do you know any? And when you use that little terminology, can you can you refer some more people like you? They will go out and and, and do their best to help spread the word. So don't always be thinking you need to come up with the next great Facebook ad. If you have two, three, five clients, start with them. You know, at the end of the session, don't be afraid to ask them to refer more people like them. And that's how you start to develop an amazing culture in your gym. I think you're a great businessman, not just a, a gym guy, because that advice, that, that just hit me hard. That's hit me hard in terms of how you grow an early stage business is you need 
more of your early adopters, the guys that fully lean in, fully engage with your service. You need more people like that. And they're the people probably most likely to find the next person like them because they're like attracted like. That is fantastic. Now, listen, I know I've kept you on the mic for so long. It's been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being gracious with your time and your intellect and just really opening up with us so we can understand these concepts. Um, I am going to make sure I uh, reference to your podcast, your Instagram page. Is there any other kind of links or plugs you want to make sure you you drop before we uh, end this call? Um, I, most of my content now, uh, free content I put out on Instagram, I'm at DeFranco's Gym, but anyone more interested in our CPPS certification, I cannot recommend that enough. You could get more information on that at cppscoaches.com. Uh, and just so people wondering what the heck does CPPS stand for, it's Certified Physical Preparation Specialist. Uh, we like physical preparation because we we cover everything: strength, speed, mobility, injury prevention. You know, it, it's it's all things physical prep. It's not just a mobility course or just a strength course. It's it's all encompassing. So Predom- predominantly US based in terms of the the service you're offering at the moment. I'm sorry, what was that? Predominantly US based in terms of delivering the, the courses at the moment. Yes, for the in in person courses, but I could tell you this is one of the rare um, times where online is just as good, and some think even more beneficial. Besides, it's it's very nice. I know a lot of people like to come and meet me and Smitty personally, which we love as well. But the online course is you're not missing anything. It is the same exact course. We brought in a full professional. Uh, you know, videography team to come in and record everything. So you have the video modules and you get to keep them forever. So I think for some people like me who needs to see and hear things multiple times before it really registers, the online is, is could almost be more beneficial for some people because you get to keep those video modules for the rest of your life. So um, if, if we're not coming to a, a town or country near you, don't don't be afraid to uh, sign up for that that online course because it is super valuable. You have those references for the rest of your life, and every time we update them, you automatically get the update. So uh, lots of value there. Oh man, I'll make sure I'll link to that as well. Thank you. Right, cool man. Listen, been a pleasure. We're get, we're gonna drop now, man. I will hopefully we'll keep in touch, and um, yeah, let's let's get this get the. The message spread uh, once it's out in a week or so's time. I'll send you the link so you can share it to your guys as well. Yes, if if your people like it, I uh, I w- I'll come on and do it again. I know you, we had a lot of other things you want to cover. It's my fault. I talk too much, so oh, I, I love it, man. We're we're, you, we're, you long, we're long we're long we're long form, and this is two. this is great, man. I'd love for you to come on a round two. Let me get my thinking cap on on what we'll talk about. Listen, man, I'll let you get back to your busy day. Uh, enjoy the pink room, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll maybe even take a screenshot. I have, I, have to head, I have to head to the gym now, but for. For those wondering, I, I did this podcast out of my daughter's pink playroom to give you a visual. <laughs> it's great. It's a great look, man. All right, man. Enjoy the rest Thank of your you. week, man. Speak soon. Yeah. 
If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.